in the summer of 2014, I spent a handful of days in the hospital with pneumonia. I had kind of run myself down and I got one of those divinely appointed timeouts, a season of, a short season of rest. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But while I was in the hospital and just had some time to reflect, I sent a lengthy message to our then director of children's ministry, Megan Hartley, and our youth pastor, Jeremy Vorse. And I was just reflecting on it and expressing my deep appreciation for both of them, my gratitude for how hard they had worked, and just the fact that I could even be in the hospital, and the youth ministry just kept right on trucking. And, uh, and so I sent that message off, and they certainly received it with gratitude, and then they mocked me. <laughs> and... Uh, Ever since then, any time that I send a message that is endearing and sentimental, it's, it's oh no, here goes Deathbed Gary. <laughs> now, this, it's tongue-in-cheek. It's, it is certainly appreciated. But I think that's a little bit of what we're getting in Deuteronomy chapter 33. Now, certainly, as Moses prays over his people, prays for his people, these blessings, it's, there's a deep level of, of sincerity about all the journey that he's been through. But listen to the opening verse of chapter 33. He says this, or the text says this. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, gave the Israelites before his death. Next week, Pastor Zach will take us through the final chapter in the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses will fully transition the leadership of Israel to Joshua, go up on the mountain, and die. And so I think it's actually a pretty normal human behavior for us in times of timeout or seasons where there's big transition coming, or even certainly coming to the end of our lives, to pause, reflect, and then express uh, not only appreciation, but blessing in some cases too certainly for those of us that are Christians. And so what we're going to look at this morning, we've been looking in this series at kind of leadership lessons from Moses, what Moses has modeled for his people, uh, what he has, what he's known for his people, what he's emoted for his people. This week is what Moses prays for his people. And I think what we see really is, is mo the overflow of Moses' heart for his people as he's journeyed with them along the way. But as we've said before, the blessings and the curses in Deuteronomy, and this week is all positive. It's all blessings. It's a wonderful week. <laughs> but these blessings are, are often things that, are, um, that we can't relate to directly. And they're, they're very specific, literal promises to Israel at a certain time. Fruitfulness of fields and vineyards and livestock and land and all of those kinds of things. But certainly we are meant to learn and to draw principles from them. Paul says to the Corinthian believers that these things happen to them, meaning the Israelites, to serve as examples for us, that we might glean instruction from them. And so we're gonna to attempt to do that as we go through this chapter, uh, to look at the blessings to Israel and then glean up, up a principle that we'll see reflected in the New Testament as well. And so I think we need the Lord's help to do that, as that he would be the one that would lead us this morning. So let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for this time in your word in Deuteronomy 33. And Lord, we just, uh, we, we approach your throne this morning seeking to learn from you. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher, our guide, our instructor? Lord, help each of us to walk away this morning, not just inspired in some way, but moved to surrender our lives to you even more so, to be your lips, your hands, and your feet to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, chapter 33 divides neatly into three sections. So we'll look at three points, not just because that's what preachers do, but this chapter actually lends itself to that. So in the first section, we'll see God's move to redeem his people, to redeem us. 
by application. And then we'll see God's words to bless his people and finally his rescue to secure them. So let's look at the first section. We're gonna pick it up because we've already looked at verse one in verse two. He, that is Moses said, the Lord came from Sinai and appeared to them from Seir. He shone on them from Mount Paran and came with 10,000 holy ones with lightning from his right hand for them. Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand and they assemble at your feet. Each receives your words. Moses gave us instruction, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. So he became king in Jeshurun when the leaders of the people gathered and the, with the tribes of Israel. We begin with uh, God's move to redeem his people. And we see the first thing that is the very presence of God. And Moses gives this description of God that's very apocalyptic. It's this majestic God coming on the clouds with 10,000 angels and lightning bolts coming from his right hand in the deliverance of his people. It's an image that would fit very nicely in Isaiah or Daniel, or even for those of you that are studying Revelation uh, this year that we're going through this semester. And part of the reason, of course, is because it's the same God of Deuteronomy, Isaiah, and so forth that we're looking at here in the scripture. And so the presence of God is a, is a huge part of it. There's the kinetic action of God in redeeming his people. He is not, as the scriptures say, a God who is far off. Moses actually describes, not in order per se, but some of the geographic places that Israel has been. That from Sinai, where the covenant law was received, to Seir, that is Edom, and the trial with Edom, to Mount Paran, and so forth. That God has been with them and moved with them in all of those places. But so too for us in the New Testament. That God's move to redeem us involved his very intimate presence in the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus. It's what we spent all that time on over Advent, deeply contemplating that Matthew's gospel tells us his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. God's move to redeem us involves his presence. It also involves the possession of his word. Look with me at verse four. Moses gave instruction, a possession for the assembly of Jacob. God's law to his people, what he said about himself and about them and what he expected of them, his blessings and curses, was given to the people as their possession. It was a gift from God. And it's fascinating to the modern ears to think that, that Israel saw God's law, including his judgments and curses and so forth, as something that was joyously received. But remember the context, if you were with us about a year ago when we looked at the early parts of Deuteronomy. He said that God's people, Israel, existed in a time and place where there were a pantheon of, of gods and pagan worship practices all around them. And that the gods of the surrounding peoples, there was no communication, number one, because they weren't gods at all, right? Blocks of wood and stone, essentially. And so worship involved trying all kinds of crazy things, including sacrificing your children in the fire, cutting yourselves, odd sexual rituals, just craziness to try to find something that would appease the gods. And here comes this God, Yahweh, creator God, the covenant keeping God, who says who he is, who says who they are more than they knew themselves and what's expected. And so the law, and by the time we get to the Psalms later, the Psalmist says over and over again, how I delight in your law. So too for us today, God's move to redeem us involves the possession of the full canon of scripture, what we know as the Bible today, as his gift to us, that we might know him. And principally that that's through his son, the Lord Jesus. That's what scripture reveals to us. Do you know that God's word is a gift to you that you might know who he is? 
Thirdly, God's move to redeem us involved in Deuteronomy, a picture of ultimately of Christ. We see it in verses four and five. I'll repeat one line. Moses in verse four says, gave us instruction, jumping down to verse five. So he became king in Jeshurun. Now, Jeshurun, if you weren't with us last week, is a sort of a term of endearment from God of Israel. It means uh, the upright one. But he says that Moses became king in Israel. And actually, there's some dispute as to whether the text here is talking about Yahweh, that God was the king of Israel, because Israel doesn't have a king. Israel is a theocracy at this point in their history. But in the text that, that Moses is serving as a, 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 a prefigurement or a picture or a type of a king that will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ himself. Now we don't have time to elaborate in detail this morning, but there are actually, there are actually three uh, characters, if you will, that are promised in the Old Testament that are, that are prefigured in Moses and fulfilled in Jesus. The first is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. Moses prefigures the prophet that Jesus fulfills in Hebrews 1. There's the priestly role. Moses is a mediator between God and his people that Christ fulfills in Hebrews 4. Zach will talk and elaborate on that a little bit next week. And then there's the king that we read about here in verse five. Moses functionally plays the role of a king ultimately fulfilled in Christ. And for those of you studying Revelation, one mini spoiler, Revelation chapter 19, the picture of Christ is the one who has written on his robe the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so for Moses, he pictures for us the Lord Jesus Christ. Later, he's... Uh, in the Old Testament that promises that the king will come from the line of King David. And Matthew's gospel, if you read Matthew's gospel, he spends essentially the entire gospel proving that Jesus is the rightful legal heir to the throne of David, the king eternal. He's not just Israel's king, he's our king. That's God's move to redeem us. And it comes through Jesus. I wonder this morning, do you know the presence of God in your life? in a powerful, personal, and intimate way through Jesus? Or is he a God that for you is kind of distant that you don't know? Get to know the possession of his word to come to know and understand him. That Jesus might not just be a great moral teacher or whatever other qualification or classification you might attribute to him because the scripture doesn't actually leave room for that, but that he would be your king. Well, let's move to sort of the majority content of this chapter is the actual blessing of Moses that he prays for his people, for all 12 tribes of Israel. It's in verses six to 25. And I will tell you right off the bat, we're not gonna hit all 12 blessings. In fact, we're gonna look at a trio of tribes and pull and kind of focus on one blessing. So your homework, should you choose to do it, if you would like to do more study this week, if you're looking for something to be reading, or if maybe you're doing Revelation, but you want more, Deuteronomy 33, verses six to 25, little self-study because we're gonna kind of cherry pick here. First trio is Reuben, Judah, and Levi. We're gonna look at the blessing to Levi. Verse eight, he that is Moses said about Levi, your Thummim and Urim belong to your faithful one. You tested him at Massa and contended with him at the waters of Meribah. He said about your father and mother, I do not regard them. He disregarded his brothers. He didn't acknowledge his sons for they kept your word and maintained your covenant. They will teach your ordinances to Jacob and your instruction to Israel. They will, say, they will set incense before you and whole burnt offering on your altar. And then here's the actual blessing. Lord, bless his possessions, that is Levi's. Accept the work of his hands. Break the back of his adversaries and enemies so that they cannot rise again. 
Well, in this particular blessing, we see that there's a special blessing for the tribe of Levi. This is the tribe for whom uh, took on the role and were designated and set apart to be those who guarded and taught the word of God uh, in the sacrificial system and what it meant to follow God to his people. And so there's a particular special blessing to them. In fact, the text says they didn't regard their parents, they didn't regard regard their brothers, but they were faithful to the covenant of God. And what's likely being referred to there is the golden calf incident where the descendants of Levi held strong. So it reads in verse four, I think it was that we read, we, uh, they kept your, I'm sorry, verse eight, they kept your word and maintained your covenant. But what's the New Testament principle? God cares about the guarding and teaching of his word. God cares about the guarding and teaching of his word. This is an Old Testament blessing that we see a New Testament principle that's echoed. Listen to Paul's words to his son in the faith, Timothy. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit that is in us. Paul says to his protege, Timothy, hold on to sound teaching and guard the good deposit, which is a reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. That message that, that God came in human flesh to bear the penalty for our sin. And that as he died, he ultimately as well rose from the dead, promising us victory and eternal life. Paul's charge to Timothy is to guard it, protect it, teach it. Be as it were one who Uh, carries it forward to the next generation and the next generation. You know, this is something that that we take very seriously at Groton Bible Chapel. We uh, talked about when we built this building that we buried a copy of the scripture underneath my feet in the concrete as a symbol of that. That when we work our way through the book of the Bible, we don't skip passages that might be particularly challenging. We teach the word of God. With that in mind, I want to make you aware of something this week. For those of you who received the Monday email, each Monday we send out an email. Anybody can subscribe to it through our website. Just go to the bottom and and hit subscribe. And pretty pretty much every Monday, myself or one of the other pastors will send out a a message to the the congregation. Might be devotional, might be an encouragement. This week is a little bit of a lengthier entry. And it comes from not just myself, but from the elders and pastors here at GBC. It's a message on false teaching. It's a message particularly about this topic, about guarding the word of God and about holding on to sound teaching. It's a little bit of a, it's about a six minute read. So I'm gonna encourage you to just take the time and read it this week. Our heart, our goal is that we would equip the body here at Groton Bible Chapel to be able to know and to discern the spirits as John says, and to know what is sound teaching to be held on to and false teaching to be rejected. And then we'll spend more time on that when we get into the book of Galatians in just a few weeks. And so I encourage you to check that out this week as sort of a practical outworking of this teaching. Well, let's look at the next trio and we come to uh, jo- Benjamin, Joseph, and, and through Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. We're gonna look at the blessing to Joseph in particular, verse 13. He, that is Moses, said about Joseph, May his land be blessed by the Lord with the dew of heaven's bounty and the watery depths that lie beneath, with the bountiful harvest from the sun and the abundant yield of the seasons, with the best products of the ancient mountains and the beauty of the eternal hills, with the choice gifts of the land and everything in it, and with the favor of him who appeared in the burning bush. May these rest in the head of Joseph on the brow of the prince of his brothers." 
The blessing of Joseph is fascinating in that we're not given a direct reason why, but it's hinted at at the end. Joseph is the prince of his brothers. If you read Genesis 38, I think it is, to 50, the majority of the end of, of the book of Genesis tells us the story of Joseph. But this blessing is this lavish, like, piling on of blessings with these, this superlative language. But what's fascinating is in the Hebrew, it's one phrase that means essentially in English, either best or choicest. And it's repeated over and over again. And so in the English, it reads this way, the dew of heaven's bounty, the bountiful harvest from the sun, the abundant yield of the season, the best products of the ancient mountains, the choicest gifts of the land and everything in it. Now remember, this is a literal promise. That is that Joseph was going to receive some of the best of the land as the one who's peace, uh, prince amongst his brothers. And there's this five-fold blessing of just this fruitfulness, this favor. And in fact, that's the, the hint at the end here is that those five sort of superlative blessings are really the expression of the last thing that Moses says in the blessing. The favor of the God who appeared in the burning bush. And think about who wrote this. <laughs> the person who stood barefoot before the burning bush itself and was commissioned by God to rescue this very people. There's a cyclical thing that Moses is doing here is he's bestowing the utmost lavish uh, a blessing of God onto Joseph. And so here's our, our principle is this. God delights in lavishly blessing those in whom he chooses. Lavishly meaning beyond what we would think is reasonable, so to speak. In Romans 8, we read that God works all things together for good to those who love God, who've been called according to his purpose. And it's kind of that idea. But note that this isn't just like that when life circumstances are great, right? Joseph, if you read Joseph's life story, it wasn't, he had a hard life. And God blesses those he chooses. But that New Testament principle is really rooted. What is that blessing? As we come to the New Testament, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Paul says. Listen to the language that he uses in, in Ephesians. He says, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. What has God given us? He's given us redemption. He's bought us back. He's restored us to relational health. He's, he's absolved us of judgment through Christ's blood. We are forgiven of our trespasses, our sins, our, our failures. It does not matter what you've done. There's no one beyond the hope of God. In fact, that's what Paul goes on to say. He says, according to the riches of God's grace, the riches, the idea of lavish and God's grace is always his favor and his love to those who are undeserved. That's all of us, myself included. The gospel is God's blessing, but it doesn't end there. What does Paul say next? He says that he richly poured out on us. We could say lavishly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. And that last phrase is not just a, a tag on. God who is infinitely wise and has perfect understanding, saw fit to bless with this pouring over the cup type of lavish blessing through the gospel of Jesus Christ, those whom he chooses. This picture to Joseph, who also, by the way, if you spend time in some study, prefigures Christ, is about the lavish blessing of God to us through the gospel. Let's look at our third trio here. Our third trio is um, 
Zebulun, Issachar, and Gad. And we're gonna, we'll see that he combines two, two tribes in this third blessing that we'll look at. Verse 18, he said about Zebulun, rejoice Zebulun in your journeys and Issachar in your tents. They, that is those two tribes, summon the peoples to a mountain. There they offer acceptable sacrifices for they draw from the wealth of the seas and the hidden treasures of the sand. Now in the literal, he's talking about the fact that uh, Issachar and Zebulun are gonna inherit land near the coast. If you're from this area, you know what it's like, mostly in the summertime, I'll admit, to live near the coast and have the bounties of living near the coast. But what is the reason? Well, you see that this is a blessing to those who compel people to the righteous worship of God. It says, they summon the peoples to a mountain. They, there they offer acceptable sacrifices. This is actually a prophetic statement that Moses has hinted at earlier, that there's gonna come a time where God's people are gonna have one place where they will worship him. And only that one place will be the place of acceptable sacrifice at the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, God's people come from a, uh, we talked about it earlier, these, these pagan nations that worship God, the Old Testament says, on every hill and mountain and under every spreading tree. And God's people were gonna be different. That the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God would dwell in the temple of God, in the city of God, in the mountain of God, in Jerusalem. And so this prophetic picture is, is these tribes that would compel people toward authentic and acceptable worship. What's the principle for us? God blesses those who lead others to him. God blesses those who lead others to him. Centuries later, Isaiah writes in his prophecy and then Paul quotes it in Romans, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. In the Old Testament, that good news is deliverance from oppressors, so on and so forth. In the New Testament, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that God would send his son, that he would die for my sin, that he would rise victorious from the grave, promising me new life and you as well. I was thinking on the, on the ride over on the bridge this morning. It's funny, we, we basically just preach one message over and over and over again. We preach it to you if you've never heard it, that it's about Christ and him crucified. And we preach it to the rest and to ourselves because we need to be reminded of it. How we grow, what is the blessing of God? It's Christ in my life. Jesus walked this life. He understands whatever it is you're going through, no matter how hard it is, he can identify with your trial. But Jesus also perfectly and faithfully obeyed his heavenly father. He obeyed where we couldn't. And he bore the burdens of your sin and he rose to life and he promises you victory. It's the same message over and over again. Listen to what Peter says about this idea of compelling others to worship. And note that Peter uses very Old Testament language. He talks to us, the church, in Israelite kind of language. He says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What is the, what is the mission? What is the thing that God not only blesses us for, but has called us for? It's to share with people. I was once in darkness and have been called into the light through what Jesus did. Some of you today may be walking in the darkness of the unknown about what happens at the end of this life. Others of us, and I'll put myself in this category at times, we sang words similar to this, we're timid. Peter says it's the very reason God called you that we might declare the praises of him who called us into this marvelous light. Well, let's look at the last trio here. 
Dan, Naphtali, and Asher. We're going to look at Naphtali in verse 23. He said about Naphtali, Naphtali enjoying approval full of the Lord's blessing, take possession to the west and the south. Now this one's a little bit more cryptic. And I like the way the NIV actually says about Naphtali. It says here, abounding with the favor of the Lord and full of his blessing. I'm going to make the case this morning that the blessing to Naphtali and particularly where the land of their inheritance will be is a blessing of the coming Messiah. You see, Naphtali's land actually borders a body of water that later will be called the Sea of Galilee. And within the borders of Naphtali are towns that later are called Capernaum and Bethsaida. And these are the places where the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry will walk, will teach, will work miracles, and will eventually move toward his passion in Bethany and in Jerusalem. And I think within the layers of this blessing, what Moses is recognizing is that Naphtali is privileged to be the place where the Lord's earthly ministry will be home-based, as it were. And there's a principle for us here. God's word always leads, always points us to Jesus. Always points us to Jesus. It's not over-spiritualizing to look at this promise in this way. Remember, we talked about, Paul says in Corinthians, that all these things happen to them that we might learn, that we might be instructed. But listen to what Jesus says specifically about the law of Moses, probably speaking a little, even uh, maybe a little bit more directly about Deuteronomy, we don't know to the Pharisees when he's challenged by them. Listen to what Jesus says himself. Do not think that I will accuse you to your father. Your accuser is Moses on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Listen, because Moses wrote about me. The blessing of Naphtali, among other things, is that the Messiah would, would walk there would perform his miracles there. And the principle to us is that God's word is always pointing us to Jesus. We should be looking for Christ in its pages because Paul and Jesus amongst other scriptures tell us that's what the whole scripture is about. Now, from again, uh, admittedly our cherry-picked study of these, of these blessings this morning, we've looked at the fact that, that God blesses those whom he chooses to with lavish blessing, ultimately through the gospel, that he rewards those who are faithful, that there's blessing for those who compel others to worship the Lord. And if you, if you start to read between the lines of that, you start to say, well, gosh, that kind of puts like a performancey pressure on me. Right? If I want the blessing of God, I've got to kind of, I've got to step up my game. Now, it might be healthy for you to sit in that for a minute, but let's remember it has nothing to do with our performance. In the gospel, Jesus is the one whom God delighted to lavishly bless more than anyone else. At one point in human history, there will come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. There is no one that God delights to more lavishly bless than his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the gospel, Jesus is the only one who fully and faithfully obeys the Lord holding on to the teaching, guarding his word. He's the only one. In the gospel, Jesus is the only one who really draws us to worship through his Holy Spirit, to worship of the Father in spirit and in truth. He's the only one who does it unfailingly. And so in a very real way, when I submit my life to Jesus, because he's the one who embodies all these things perfectly, faithfully, when I surrender my life to him, then I receive all of the, Paul says in Ephesians, all of the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies are mine in Christ. I stand in him already blessed. 
It's not about my performance. But if that's true, then how, I, how ought I to live and bless others? In light of that, I was listening to a, a clip on Instagram today from Paul Tripp, and he said, the God of love sends a people of love to give love to a world that's desperately in need of love. That's what Paul, that's what's being at stake here in Deuteronomy and in these principles that we've looked at in the gospel itself. So how can we do this practically? I want, I want to tell you a story and I want to just give you a really uh, simple and practical exercise for you to kind of wrestle through and think about. Uh, in 2001, my father and I directed Father-Son Weekend at Camp Rhea in New Hampshire. We actually did it a couple of times, um, but in 2001 was the first time. And so we put together a team of men and their sons from this church and we went up and we ran the camp for the weekend. And it was a blast. We had a lot of fun. And um, what was also true sort of in backstory was 2001 was just 18 months or two years after my parents had made the decision to leave GBC. And it was painful part of our relationship. And, and I wouldn't say that our relationship was bad, but it was certainly strained. And we'd had some hard conversations over those couple of years. But God put us there on purpose. And we were leading this team, this father-son weekend. And the speaker at the end of the main message, and I don't remember who the speaker was, but I know he was preaching on um, Genesis 49, where, where Jacob blesses his 12 sons, who are the patriarchs of these 12 tribes we talk about today. And he had the dads and the sons leave the main session and go off somewhere by themselves, just father and son. And he had the fathers either pray or pronounce a blessing over their sons. And it was a powerful and necessary thing that led to a really good conversation at that particular time in my journey with, with my father. And I was thinking about that uh, over this last week and thinking, what would it look like if we took time, dads and moms in particular, to either write uh, or pull some psalms together and just pull our kids aside and put our hands on their shoulders or their heads and actually pray a blessing over them from scripture, a blessing of, of, of the gospel in particular and what God has for them and wants for them. When my kids were really small, I would do this sometimes at night when they were sleeping, you know, put my hand on their head and just pray over them. Uh, later, when my sons turned 13, as a part of their sort of coming of age thing, we did this very directly in a, in a public setting with the family, praying God's blessing on them. Maybe it's a grandparent. Maybe as a grandparent, you could do that for your grandkids. Maybe if you're mentoring or discipling someone, you could meet up with that person in a week or two and say, hey, I just want to pray God's blessing over you. I want to read this psalm and, and just pray it for you. Maybe if you're a Sunday school teacher or an Awana leader, you could take two minutes at the end of your class and just kind of pray over your kids, God's blessing. What would it look like if we who already are a blessing in Christ were being a blessing very intentionally to those in our lives? Let's extend that a little further. What if we did that in the world? I don't mean in some weird, creepy way, but what if we went to the gas station attendant or the person at Walmart and just said, hey, I'm praying God blesses your day today. Or as a question to say, hey, is there anything in your life that I could pray where God would, might bless you? Who knows what conversations that might open up? That, that we would take the risk of being a blessing, being that love that, that Paul Tripp talked about to those around us. Well, more we could say there, but I encourage you to really kind of reflect on that and, and take one person in your life and do that over the next couple of weeks. Well, we need to move quickly here at the end. We've looked at God's move to redeem us. We've looked at his words to bless us. Now we're gonna look at his rescue that secures us. And we see that in the last few verses of the chapter, 
Moses writes, there is none like the God of Jeshurun who rides the heavens to your aid, the clouds in his majesty. The God of old is your dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. He drives out the enemy before you and commands destroy. So Israel dwells securely and Jacob lives untroubled in a land of grain and new wine. Even his skies drip with dew. How happy are you, Israel? Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? He is the shield that protects you, the sword you boast in. Your enemies will cringe before you and you will tread on their backs. Moses kind of ends where he began, right? He presents a very similar image of this majestic, almost apocalyptic God descending from the heavens to defend and rescue his people. And he actually says there's three things about that make this God unique, that he's, he's different than every other God. The, the same thing that God said of himself last week. But number one, that he's the ruler. He is the sovereign. He is supreme. He rules, verse 26. Verse 27 and 28, that he is our refuge, that he, has, he rescues us to secure us, that we would have a place to land. And, and I love that image that, uh, that his everlasting arms are under us. And finally, verse 29 that he's a rescuer. And that's who he is for us today as we look at the New Testament scriptures. You know, in, in one of his books, uh, Gordon MacDonald talks about the gathering of church on Sunday mornings as sort of like uh, pulling off in the pit crew from a NASCAR race, right? Going through the crazy of the lap of a race and pulling into the pit crew. And then when we gather together for, for worship in the word that we're being refueled and repaired and, and, and kind of reset. And then we're pushed back out into the race. You know, our associate pastor, Zach Stevens, often ends his, our services with the words, you are not dismissed, you are sent. And that's with the spirit that there is a mission for us beyond those doors, that there's a mission for you after you get up from that couch if you're home this morning. And so I wanna kind of have that in mind this morning as we end our service with something completely different for our Sunday morning culture. Just kind of, kind of burst our normal bubble here. I wanna directly and literally apply what Moses has done as he comes to the end of his words to his people. So we're gonna do two things. In a moment, I'm gonna ask you to stand and I'm just gonna read two verses over you. One little passage of scripture that speaks of our rescue that secures us through Christ. And then I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads and I'm actually gonna pray a benediction over you. And we won't have final words. No one will come up afterwards. And when I say amen, we'll go forth from here in the spirit of that benediction. So go ahead and stand with me this morning. We'll read the word of God. This is the message of our rescue to secure us through Christ, 2 Timothy 1. He, that is God, has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our savior, Christ Jesus who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Bow your heads and allow me to pray for you this morning. Brothers and sisters, friends here at Groton Bible Chapel, as you leave here today, go forth into the world, that is to your homes and neighborhoods, your places of business and work, to the fields of recreation and rest, Go with the memory of this precious time when you have refreshed your souls in the presence of God and his people. 
Go with the intention to be faithful to the Lord Jesus. Go with the promise that you will carry his love, his blessing to your family and to your friends, to your coworkers and to those who serve you in the community and to those you meet along the way who are in need. Go with courage, with a resolve to be free from sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, go with the joyous reminder that at any moment, at any moment, Jesus may return. And I pray this on all our behalf, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.